you know, you see performance improving when people start to sleep better. There's just this really deep underlying assumption that particularly also amongst leaders and knowledge workers that more is better. That if I just spend more hours working or if my team just spends more hours being responsive to my emails or my other messages, that somehow we're going to move faster towards our goal. And that's such a myth. Hey, Sean here. Welcome back to Some Assembly Required. The podcast explores the intricacies of our brain, and I'm very excited to share this episode on the power of sleep with you. And when we think about mental performance, I often explain it along the lines of both IQ as well as EQ. That's Dr. Funderhelm. Else Funderhelm. She said I could call her Else. She's a sleep neuroscientist. In fact, Ariana Huffington's Thrive Global named her one of the top five sleep experts in the world. Else is very much focused on helping us improve our day-to-day performance by improving the sleep of business leaders as well as their teams. Now, I have lost a lot of sleep in my lifetime. My sleep has been interrupted far too many times too. Having a young child with epilepsy and special needs means I never really switch off, simply because a seizure can happen without warning. I've slept in hospital passages, on the floor in hospital rooms, and prior to Zoe being born, I even slept in backup studios between radio shows. This sleep I speak of was never restorative. I know now how much of an impact this added to my burnout. So... Else, you're a sleep neuroscientist. How would you complete the sentence, sleep is the foundation for? Uh, Just about everything. And that's not just because I'm biased to being a sleep lover. You really see the impact of sleep ranging from physical health over to mental health and therefore also physical performance and mental performance. And when we think about mental performance, I often explain it along the lines of both IQ as well as EQ. So that's really short term, right? I haven't had good sleep a couple of nights and I can see that my IQ is basically losing a bunch of points as well as my EQ. But we also see more longer term impact of sleep loss. For instance, when you often have difficulty sleeping, we see an increased chance of developing depression, anxiety, or burnout. So the list is very long, and I think different people are hooked on the idea of sleep for different reasons. For one individual, it might be that Alzheimer's disease is running in the family and people are worried about that. And then here, that chronic sleep restriction or chronic sleep deprivation increases your risk of Alzheimer's. And that's a trigger for them to pay more attention to getting good sleep. Whereas for someone else, it might be that they want to manage their weight and they're really focused on what they're eating, but they're neglecting the importance of sleep. And when they learn the importance of sleep for diet, that's a trigger. And for others, it is purely focused on just wanting to be happy and not cranky and impatient with the people around them. So it's very foundational, but I think that also means that different people are motivated by different things that sleep is doing. I'm very grateful that you expanded on that answer. I think many people understand that it's the foundation for everything. But then in that 
sort of buckets of just everything. They're not really thinking about how it can affect the various aspects of their life. So why don't you then maybe break down for me in relatively layman's terms, what happens to our brains when we sleep? So to start with the basics, sleep is not just one thing. We have multiple stages of sleep and we cycle through them multiple times a night. So when we fall asleep, we first enter a light sleep, and then we have stage one, which is really a transitional stage, really, between being awake and being asleep. Then we have stage two, a bit deeper than stage one, but we still call it light sleep. Then we have deep sleep, or stage three. Now, we used to have stage three and four, both called slow-wave sleep. But that's been simplified now. We just call it stage three. But if you read uh, older articles, you might still come across stage four. And we call it slow wave sleep because if you measure the EEG or if if you measure sleep with EEG, you can see really big and slow waves on that EEG. And that's because all of the neurons in the brain are much more synchronized. And when they're synchronized, you can catch these bigger waves. So that is all called non-REM sleep. And then you can already guess which stage I left out, which is REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. And that's the stage in which we have the most vivid dreams. It's not as if you are woken up in any of the other stages that you have nothing to say about what you were dreaming, but really the most elaborate and vivid dreams come from REM sleep. And we cycle through these different stages about every 90 minutes. So you get basically a bit of each every 90 minutes, and then you cycle on to the next um, to the next cycle. So in a whole night, you might have four or five cycles, depending on how long you're sleeping. But what we see is that the composition of those cycles changes across the night, where in the first half of the night, the cycles have much more deep sleep, but in the second half of the night, the cycles have much more REM sleep. If you would just draw out the different stages and cycles across the night, and then what's happening in our brain and our bodies also differs per stage of sleep. (laughs) I already said a little bit about deep sleep and the fact that we have these really big waves and all of the synchronization in terms of brain activity. What we also see is that I would call it one of the most fundamental functions of sleep, and that's the cleaning of our brain. So when we're active, when we're awake, our neurons use up energy. But while they're using up energy, they're also producing byproducts in this process, including toxic byproducts. And we need to get rid of those. And we used to think that it was somehow recycled in the brain, but in 2013, we discovered that actually our brain isn't recycling these toxic byproducts, but it's getting rid of them and it's moving them into our lymphatic system. But only in 2013 did we discover this process you know, exists. And later on, we discovered that this is taking place mostly during deep sleep. And I think it's definitely one of the most critical functions of sleep and also of deep sleep. Then stage two, of course, also important for many things, but one of them being memory processing. So brain plasticity, learning and memory. And when we think about REM sleep, and this is actually part of my own PhD 
it's really strongly linked to emotional processing. So both emotional memory, we have better memory for emotional events after a good night of sleep, but particularly after REM sleep. But at the same time, we don't re-experience kind of the arousal that went along with that. So the next day we can think back of that emotional memory, but we don't really relive it the same way. And we think that REM sleep has a really important role in that as well as in creativity and motor learning. There's many more functions of sleep and benefits of sleep, but kind of a rough outline of what it looks like across the night and some of the important functions of the different stages. Clearly, there are so many benefits and things happening to our brains during sleep, but there are just as many dangers associated with not getting good quality sleep. Indeed. And you can see this in many different ways. So, of course, we have health studies looking at the impact of different amounts of sleep, just looking at duration. Luckily, more and more studies are also looking at the importance of sleep quality. Of course, this is always a bit difficult to really ask in these really big health studies where not everyone is going to have an EEG and have their sleep recorded according to gold standards. So we see a lot of correlations in these health studies. And correlation doesn't imply a causation, but you really see that chronic sleep disruption is associated with, as I said, a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease and some other dementias, but also cardiovascular disease. So whether it's a heart attack or a stroke, type 2 diabetes, of course, also linked to this link between sleep deprivation and being overweight. So it has all these Yeah, negative downstream effects on our health. And some of them you can even see after a single night of sleep deprivation in really experimental studies. So after one night of sleep deprivation, we already see that your blood pressure is increasing. And of course, this explains some of these downstream later effects of sleep deprivation, because we know that having high blood pressure also means that you're at higher risk for certain dementias, for instance. So we're starting to understand a little bit more about how these long-term effects of sleep restriction or these correlations that we're seeing, how they really might be a causal relationship and understanding a little bit more the mechanisms. However, we still have no idea who is at risk for what exactly and How much sleep deprivation does it take to really push you over the edge? So I often use the analogy of smoking. We know that smoking increases your chances of lung cancer and a couple of other cancers, but we don't know who exactly can smoke almost a whole lifetime and not get any of these cancers versus people who do, where it really makes a significant difference, the fact that they were smoking. But of course, we know that overall, the more you smoke, the higher the likelihood and the earlier you stop, the better. And that's a bit similar in sleep deprivation, where we see that all these correlational results, but also that as soon as people do improve their sleep, they're lowering their risk. The tricky thing, though, with sleep deprivation is that, unlike with smoking, that it's not just a couple of cancers that it's associated with, but the fact that it's associated with so many different outcomes, to me, really speaks to the truth that it is actually fundamental for 
probably just about every one of us, but perhaps for different reasons. So by sleeping well, maybe I am preventing myself from a certain cancer, but maybe you are preventing um, Alzheimer's or maybe you're delaying Alzheimer's by 10 years, right? So unfortunately we have none of this <laughs> properly quantified, but I think also with smoking, it's never been properly studied in humans that it is causal, but we see so much evidence that we take it to be causal. And I think we should do the same thing with sleep deprivation. And yeah, we'll never be able to do those experiments on humans. Better to just look at the data now and say, okay, this is important and we should really be promoting good sleep for everybody. I'm interested to know whether you find that people generally see sleep as such an everyday simple thing that they don't take it seriously to the extent that you feel they should? I think it depends. So there's definitely a group, and I call them non-prioritizers, <laughs> who are indeed exactly as you describe, not paying much attention to sleep. Within and by itself, it's not a bad thing. Actually, I think some of the best sleepers out there don't necessarily give it much thought. <laughs> However, the danger is when they are chronically sleep depriving themselves. And unfortunately, a really big group of people is doing that. And kind of hallmark signs are if you need an alarm to wake up with, that's a sign that you haven't had enough sleep. Because when you've had enough sleep, you'll wake up naturally when your brain is basically done sleeping. I often see amongst my clients that about 80% of them use an alarm, which then is quite worrisome. But I also see that when people are sleep deprived, they are much more likely to need caffeine or other stimulants to get through the day. And you know, as well as I do, how many Starbucks there are in the world, <laughs> um, which I think is another kind of hallmark sign of how many people are in fact not getting good sleep and using almost self-medication to cope with that. But then there's another group who is very well aware of the importance of sleep, but it just doesn't work. So they have trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, or waking up too early. And this group is almost too focused on sleep and the importance of sleep. And this gets much worse, which maybe you've also noticed yourself, when you're awake in the middle of the night, lying in bed, and you really want to sleep, but it doesn't work, things look you know, humongous. They just look so big and so worrisome and you just create more stress and then you're even less likely to fall asleep. So this group needs a very different approach. Instead of this laundry list that I just gave you about all the kind of dangers of not getting good sleep, there we need to work actually much more on this reassurance that everybody can sleep. I think that's the first thing to really trust that even when you have a lot of sleep problems, you have it in you to get good sleep. But it is very much around both your behavior during the day. So everything you do during the day is basically setting you up for a good night or you know, much more of a worse night, but also your cognition. What do you think about sleep? What do you expect of sleep? And what do you think is going to happen when you don't get good sleep? So I would say those two groups need a very different approach. And then the third group I call the optimizers who are relatively good sleepers. They're just interested in how to further improve their sleep, maybe further boost the quality of their sleep. But in principle, they're not really suffering from 
insomnia or anything like that. They're pretty good sleepers. They just want to improve it a bit further. I'm somewhere in group two, definitely, but I'd like to be a little bit more aware of what I could do to improve my sleep. So I think we'll include that in part of our conversation. I'm thinking of a very anecdotal phrase right now that I know I've used with others and others have used on me. When they said to me, just sleep on it, get some rest, and then we'll tackle it tomorrow, whether it be a big decision or an email that we're about to send out that maybe is a little bit harsh, but you're feeling really angry. Is there anything scientific in that phrase, sleep on it, or are we just making things up because it it feels good for us to just give it a break and put it on pause? Well, you're spot on. That is exactly what science is showing us. And it's been studied in two different ways. So one is, let's call it kind of the cognitive problem that you're trying to solve. And, you know, you can't quite figure it out. Um, You tell yourself to sleep on it. And then the next day, it suddenly seems pretty clear, you know, what you're supposed to do or what the right answer is. And there's been some really interesting studies on this, and one particularly by a German group led by Jan Born. Um, their article is called Sleep Inspires Insight, which I think already gives away what they found. So they had participants run through a bunch of different number sequences, and they're similar to the ones that you get in these IQ tests where the numbers go up and then you have to figure out what's the next number in the sequence. Or they're even more complicated, right? Going up and down, etc. So they had participants go through a bunch of these sequences and then had them come back later, either after 12 hours of wakefulness or after a night of sleep. And they had all the counterbalanced groups as well, where it was 24 hours to make sure that the time of day wasn't implicated in this. And what they found, um, oh, and I should tell you that there was actually a hidden rule in these sequences. And if you figured out the hidden rule, you were much, uh, much quicker in answering these sequences. So it was very obvious when someone figured out the hidden rule or not. And they found that after a night of sleep, 60% of people discovered this hidden rule. Whereas if they hadn't slept, only 25% discovered this hidden rule. So you're more than double as likely in discovering kind of a hidden pattern, even when you're not even aware that there is a hidden pattern, because none of these participants were told that there was some kind of shortcut. So I think that already goes to show how when you sleep on a problem, you actually continue to work on it. It's not as if you've stopped working. (laughs) Actually, your brain is still very much working on problems that you faced during the day. And you don't have to do anything special. It just naturally picks up on that and helps you in this process. So that's kind of the cognitive part. But then looking at the emotional part, you see a very similar dynamic where indeed, especially in the evening, or I should say, as we are increasingly awake, so the increasing number of hours of being awake will make you more imbalanced, more impulsive, more emotional. And if you, for instance, really look at the brain, we also see that the amygdala, our emotional center, becomes much more reactive after increasing hours of wakefulness. And the research group that I was in showed this first after 24 hours of wakefulness, but my own studies looked at participants across a normal day. 
We weren't sleep depriving them and already we saw that they were more reactive in the evening than they were in the morning. But then after a good night of sleep, we see that these participants are much less reactive, even to the same emotional stimuli that they before and that they were really reactive to the night before. And this particularly correlates to their REM sleep and hence again this role for REM sleep in emotional processing. So indeed when you get a message or an email from someone and you can just feel it in your gut <laughs> and you really want to respond and it's really intense and maybe you're angry then even though it can be hard it's better to show some restraint and actually respond the next day. And what can really help there is to draft your response still that same evening so that you have a bit of kind of your thought process and what you want to say put down in writing so that at least you can give the signal to your brain that, you know, you're done with it. And it is basically ready to go as is. And that will help you get better sleep at night. And then when you look at that same email the next morning, um, I can almost assure you that you will want to turn it down a couple of notches <laughs> and actually write a much more balanced message. So yeah, th that was great advice that you were sharing with your friends. That's really cool to hear that there's a little bit of science to the things that I say without even realizing I'm that smart. So thank you very much for that one. Elsa, as an adjunct professor at IE Business School, can you maybe talk me through the link between effective leadership and sleeping well? I'm seeing a lot of high-level thinkers being pushed really hard throughout the pandemic, after the pandemic, having to lead organizations, having to manage teams, having to look at hybrid working situations. And there's a lot of talk about wellness, but how are we making sure that the workforce is indeed taking heed of this advice and applying the necessary time that they need to put into their sleep and how it can actually affect their leadership? I've done some of this research myself. As you said, I was at McKinsey previously, and McKinsey had already done a lot of leadership research and finding you know, typical behaviors that are associated with good leadership, such as, for instance, being goal-oriented, um, but also being good at relationships at work. And then we looked at those behaviors and really teased apart how sleep helps you with those behaviors. So we know that when people are well-rested, they are, for instance, much better at goal-directed behavior and keeping their eye on the ball instead of you know, going in different directions and, and being more easily distracted by other to-dos or urgent things. But we also see this really important role for sleep in our social relationships. And on the one hand, this is really about the individual, where when an individual gets good sleep, they can manage their own emotions better. And this has got to do not just with amygdala reactivity, but also the role of the prefrontal cortex. So basically the more frontal part of your brain that's evolved last in evolution, but that is also most sensitive to sleep deprivation. And the prefrontal cortex normally has this break on the amygdala, but only when we're well rested. And we see that when we're sleep deprived, we kind of lose this inhibitory control of the, over the amygdala and hence become more reactive. 
And you can imagine that when you are more reactive, it's much harder to build good relationships. But we also really see this back in the studies that people who are well-rested are more able to show empathy, for instance, to others, but also trust others more easily. And then I really love the research done by Christopher Barnes at the Foster School of Business at the University of Washington. And he has done just study after study really looking at the impact of sleep in the workplace. So not in a lab on university students, but really looking at leaders and their teams at work. And he's found that sleep deprived leaders are not only less inspiring, but also that a tired team is harder to inspire. And he's also shown that tired leaders are rated to be more abusive in their leadership style. And it's not as if you've got bad leaders and good leaders. He's really shown that the quality of their sleep predicted them to be a better leader the next day, whereas a poor night of sleep predicted for them to be more abusive in their leadership style the next day. And of course, not surprisingly, this also had a big impact on the engagement in their teams. When you have a less inspiring and more abusive leader, you're not going to be as engaged at work. And what I also find interesting is that with his studies, he's also shown that when people are tired, they act less ethical. But for instance, they also take credit for work they didn't do, and they let others in the team do more work. So you're really not just less of a leader, you're also a much worse colleague to have on your team. <laughs> Sounds like it. So then in terms of improving the quality and the efficiency of sleep for leaders specifically, like what can organizations or institutions do to ensure that their leaders are performing at those highest levels to get the best out of them and their staff? So I think for organizations, there's a couple of important things to do. And not to refer back again to McKinsey, but McKinsey kind of has this fam famous model on transformational change in an organization and what is required for it. And one of the important things is leadership role modeling. However your leader acts, completely trickles down through the organization. I always recommend to organizations that they first start with their leadership and management team. They first need to discover for themselves what better sleep does, what it does to not only their mood and how they feel, but also how they perform at work and what impact it's having on their relationships at work, their results at work. And only when the leaders really value sleep can they start kind of educate and get the rest of the organization along with this. And again, work from Christopher Barnes has also shown that when leaders aren't valuing sleep, meaning that they make a little comments about maybe pulling an all-nighter or staying up late, or you can sleep when you're dead, that those things are directly associated with worse sleep in their teens. So what leaders do has a really important impact um, downstream. But other things that are important in a transformation is that people need to be aware and they need to be educated. So not just sleep is important, great, but what does that actually mean? And what it means is different from individual to individual. We just spoke about the kind of the three big groups and they all need different messaging, but even within those groups, 
different people will need different advice regarding what the best kind of lever for them is to start tweaking, where maybe for one person, actually what's really important for them is to reduce stress in X number of ways. Whereas for another, it might be much more around substances, alcohol, caffeine, nicotine, etc. So there's a bit of the education and tailoring it. It's about what leaderships are doing. But I think at the end of the day, it is also about what the incentives are. If, you know, in an organization, a leader isn't really, I would say, incentivized, right, for the well-being of their teams, then that leader is much more likely to burn through a team, maybe just to get short-term results. But then as an organization, you lose talent. You have to recruit new talent, train them up before you're back at the same level. So I think that's really important that it's not you know talking about it and promoting it, but it's really about making every leader accountable for the well-being in their team. And that, that does mean that sometimes you've got to, acknowledge that there is a trade-off between just pushing harder in the short term for the short-term result versus thinking about where do we want to be in one year and how am I going to make sure that this entire team is still there in one year helping me reach that goal. I like that you mentioned that because so often we look at the, let's say, the triple bottom line or whatever the, the turnover might be in an organization. And very seldom do we consider what the human capital is actually going through to be able to achieve those goals. So if we do look after them, then we can hopefully achieve whatever those monetary goals or organizational goals are that we have. Return investment is positive, right? So it's you know, you see performance um, improving when people start to sleep better. There's just this really deep underlying assumption that particularly also amongst leaders and knowledge workers that more is better, that if I just spend more hours working or if my team just spends more hours being responsive to my emails or my other messages, that somehow we're going to move faster towards our goal. And that's such, you know, such a myth. Actually, for performance, we really need that recovery and we need to unplug from work and people need to be able to recharge and re-energize. And if you let them work late, you actually see their performance decrease the next day. So this, this space between work and you as an individual is very much needed to actually get to that high performance. But I think it's this, yeah, this old fashioned thinking that somehow more is better. And I think that's really leading to a lot of burnout these days because our days are getting much more intense than they ever were with all the different communication channels and kind of everything we need to monitor and everything that's being thrown up at us in a day compared to 20 years ago. We weren't so connected all the time. And there was this automatic built-in time for recovery. I think the tricky thing there is that it can be very addictive. It can be very addictive to check your email or check your messages, even those from work, because it could bring this potential dopamine boost and that you got another thing done today. So mm -hmm. I'm not saying that this is just on leaders. It is just as much on team members to become more aware of kind of this danger of this connectivity getting very addictive and that can actually be really hard 
to disconnect. And that's why I love it when some companies just really take steps to make sure that everybody takes that break, whether, you know, it's no emails being sent after a certain time at night or everybody going on a recharge week because you can't put everything with the employees, their problem, but you also can't put everything on a leader because yeah. it's really also on the individual to think through this and change behavior. 100%, yeah. There's a cultural shift that needs to happen maybe in the workforce. And as you were talking, I'm thinking as well about how so often we recognize the fact that elite athletes need to rest before a big game. Why is it then that we don't think the same about our workforces? Why don't we think the same way? Yeah, that's a really good question. I do often show examples of top athletes. You've got Roger Federer, LeBron James, both saying they sleep about 12 hours a night. Or I'm so jealous. Hours. And of course, the very first response of people, and I get that as well, that's great, but... All they have to do is go to a couple of hours of practice, maybe tops, and they can design their entire lives towards that and therefore, you know, get more sleep. So that's partially true, but there's also really good examples in the business world. And I think more and more, I see these examples, people, leaders almost coming out (laughs) in parentheses here or in quotation marks that they are actually prioritizing sleep and that they do stick to certain rules that they really obey to get to that good performance. And they are almost all around this recovery, whether it's how many hours they sleep, whether it's their evening and what exact time they really unplug to make sure that they have time for their wind down. And we've also done some analyses ourselves in a really big group of people all working at a top consultancy firm. And we looked at, okay, what do the people do that report really low stress levels, also high sleep quality and a low sleep debt? So clearly they're getting good sleep and they're not very stressed. What do they say they do to make this sustainable for themselves? And time again, you see this theme of creating space between themselves and work, creating barriers, learning how to say no, and focusing on this recovery time, whether it's recharging with their family, whether it's taking time for meditation. It's just really clear that if you want to be successful at work, you need to very quickly learn how to actually distance yourself from work. And maybe to build on that, there was a really interesting study by Rasmus Hogard and Christine Carter published in the Harvard Business Review, where they looked at leaders and their sleep. Because very often, also people ask me, what about these leaders who just sleep four hours a night and you hear this so much, how is that possible? So they really looked into this common belief and showed that it's actually very much a myth. So they did a study amongst 35 was it 1,000 or 3,500? I'd have to look it up, but <laughs> more than 3,500 leaders. <laughs> I think it was actually 35,000. And they looked at their sleep as well as their seniority level. And they found that the most senior leaders were also the ones who got more sleep compared to the less senior leaders. Which, of course, means that one of two things is going on. Either as you become more senior, you just have more resources to outsource. You have more support. You have a personal assistant. And now you can finally get more sleep. 
or these leaders have always been prioritizing their sleep. And because they've always been prioritizing their sleep, they were just more likely to get promoted to more senior levels. So they did follow-up interviews with more than 250 of these leaders and found that it was the latter. It was indeed that a lot of these leaders had always been prioritizing their sleep. So I think this is really important research to get out to everybody that if you want to move up, <laughs> whether it's in your organization or in any other way, you should really prioritize your sleep. Mm. And some kind of recovery is exceptionally important, which then brings me to my next question. You mentioned sleep debts just a little while ago. Is it possible to make up for lost sleep? Yes and no. <laughs> I like the first word, yes. Why no? <laughs> <laughs> Let me start with the negative part. Uh, why no? Why can't you fully catch up? First of all, you cannot recoup every hour one-to-one. So if you sleep deprive people and you take away hours of their sleep and subsequently you give them unlimited time to sleep, they don't recoup it one by one. It's just impossible. So you literally cannot catch up on every hour, which of course doesn't yet mean that it's negative, but it just seems humanly impossible to directly do that. And then secondly, we see that if we look, for instance, at some metabolic measures, etc., that it also takes quite a long time for us to recover from sleep deprivation. Um, you can't make it up one-to-one. Two, it takes you probably much longer than you think to get extra sleep, to get back to baseline, whether it's in terms of cognitive performance or some of the, these metabolic markers. And finally, the research I described earlier where people who are chronically sleep-deprived have an increased risk of so many kind of downstream things that really leads us to believe that it is not a healthy thing to build up your sleep debt, pay it off, build it up, pay it off. But the answer is also yes, (laughs) you can pay it off in terms of only if you get extra sleep, will you get back to baseline on kind of anything that we can measure, right? So we can sleep deprive people and then we can measure all these different things that go haywire. But basically just about anything that we can measure can get back to baseline if we just really enforce this recovery sleep. Meaning that in these studies, they're just really put in a dark room for 14 hours. And then you're so bored out of your mind that you'll just sleep more. But in real life, what I really recommend is that people either take naps to basically get some extra sleep during the day or go to bed earlier at night. You could also sleep in a bit in the morning. However, when you sleep in in the morning, the quality of the sleep is often much less. There's more awakenings. And there's a bit of a danger, which we see very pronounced in social jet lag, that when people sleep in the morning, they also don't get bright light early in the morning. And then they become sleepy later that same night. So they're basically shifting their rhythm. Um, And, you know, we haven't spoken much yet about the biological clock, but it's just as important as the sleep itself. So preferably you have this very boring 24-hour rhythm in everything that you do. But then if you have to catch up on sleep, You have to turn some knobs, of course, to get this extra sleep, but then it's 
preferable that you go to bed a bit early versus sleeping in late or taking the nap. I think there are two more things that I want to touch on. And you mentioned the biological clock now. I was going to ask you about whether snoozing, and I think you've already alluded to it, snoozing an alarm surely can't be too good because you've now just said that light sleep early in the morning, sort of awake asleep, awake asleep isn't necessarily so good, pushing off your biorhythms, so to speak. What should we then be doing? If you're looking at your biological clock, you're talking about as much bright light in the early morning as possible. And then you touched on napping as well. So those are two things that I really want to get across before we wrap this up. Which one do you want to start with? Let's start with snoozing. It's, snoozing is partially bad because of the biological clock, but it's also the other side of it, I would say, is really due to its effect on sleep directly. So in general, what your brain prefers is consolidated sleep, meaning there's no disruptions, there's nothing externally waking you up. And what do you do when you're snoozing? You do exactly that, right? You're disrupting your own sleep and not once, but multiple times. So you're waking up your brain out of sleep. And that's a really big transition actually for your brain to go through. Neurochemically, it's different. In terms of brain activity, it's very different. So preferably your brain goes through that naturally. But if you do need an alarm, then you should only go through that process once and not multiple times. Because when your alarm goes off and your brain makes this transition and then you tell it, oh, you know, just kidding, go back to sleep, your brain will want to start a whole new sleep cycle, which is about 19 minutes. But instead, your alarm is going to go off on average about nine minutes later. So that's, you know, the, the sleep disruption in itself is also a wasted opportunity. You could have had consolidated sleep if you just set your alarm at the very, very latest time possible. Maybe you would have even woken up naturally that way. But of course, many people snooze because in total, they're not getting enough sleep. And if in total, you're not getting enough sleep, you experience much more sleep inertia. So when you wake up and you still feel really groggy and you feel this really strong push to go back to sleep, um, and yeah, the makers of the snooze alarm benefit, <laughs> benefited from that and became very popular because sleep deprivation is just so ubiquitous. So what I do recommend is, you know, if you can't wake up naturally, is to use a sunrise alarm. So an alarm that has a very, really bright light that goes off before the alarm makes any sound. And this bright light can help pull you out of deeper stages of sleep into either lighter stages of sleep or wake you up. And the other benefit, and that's really related to the biological clock, is that you then automatically get really bright light early in the day, and that will make your rhythm earlier, which means that you're more likely to feel sleepier earlier that same night. Right. And you can build on that by also going to bed a bit earlier and then basically having an easier time waking up the next morning. So when you sleep late compared to your biological clock, it's also going to be harder to, to wake up in the morning. So then you want to move your clock a bit earlier so that it's easier to wake up in the morning, but also that it's easier to get sleepy in the evening. And I guess then for the same reason, if you were to take a nap late in the afternoon and when you do eventually wake up and it's a lot darker outside than it was when you took a nap in late afternoon, you tend to feel a little groggy. You may struggle to fall asleep again that evening because of those rhythms that might be a little bit out. 
Yeah, that's both the lack of light, um, but indeed a late nap is much more likely to disrupt your sleep at night because after the nap, you don't have as much time to build up more sleep pressure to then get sleepy again that same evening. So for that reason, I recommend that people take a nap in the early afternoon so that there's still plenty of time after the nap to build up new sleep pressure and for it to not disrupt your sleep at night. But I should say that if you regularly have trouble falling asleep, staying asleep or waking up too early, you should not take naps because they lower your sleep pressure, but that's actually exactly what you need if you have trouble sleeping at night. You wanna get as much sleep pressure as you can at night. So for those people, unfortunately naps are not a great way and we first need to fix the sleep at night before adding that. Else, this has been really cool to chat to you. Do you have an evening ritual that helps you prepare your body and your mind for sleep, whether you're at home or whether you're traveling, something that is almost universal that helps you get into that sleep state? Yeah, and, and I should first say that everybody has a bit of a routine. Brushing your teeth, going to the bathroom, getting into pajamas, but preferably you kind of build out this routine a bit so that it takes longer, but also that you always do the elements of your routine in the same order because our brain is really sensitive to associations. A, and then we have B, and then it's followed by C, etc. And we do this really well with young children, but we don't tend to do it as well with ourselves. So I think we all have it, um, and it's not very difficult, but if you want to take more time to unwind and if you often feel like your brain is still racing and going by the time you go to sleep or when you wake up in the middle of the night then it's really time to make this wind down a bit longer more relaxing and in general you want to do more perceptual activities versus conceptual activities so an example of a perceptual activity is doing the dishes or putting out your clothes for the next day or folding your laundry or listening to music. It doesn't really require, you know, much brain power. It can just kind of be relaxing, not a difficult problem to work on. Whereas conceptual activities are more replying to emails or thinking about a problem or having a really intense conversation. And those activities really increase your arousal levels. And that's exactly what we don't want in the evening. And what I personally do just about every night, a bit less on the weekends, because I feel like I'm maybe more naturally already relaxed on a weekend than I am during the week, is that I write in my journal every evening. So I get my little notebook. There's no iPad or whatever. I'm just writing old fashioned style. And it's always the same way. I write down the day, I write down the time, where I am. And then I just kind of start writing about my day. And it's not really for me to read later. It's also not for me to share with anybody. It's really just this brain dump of yeah. what happened today and how did it make me feel? And it's a bit like a therapy session with myself where mm -hmm. I can write down my frustrations, but at the same time, I'm almost my own therapist and saying, but maybe it's not so bad or well, yeah. I'll try next time is X, Y, and Z. And then I feel like a lot of the thinking process that would otherwise happen when I close my eyes 
have been dealt with, but in a much more constructive way. If you're writing down your thoughts, it takes you a bit longer to have the thoughts mm. as you're writing it down. And I think there's just less room to go and freak out about it because you're in this kind of constructive problem solving mode. Um, so yeah, I, I do that wherever I go. I think to leave our listeners with, uh, they have a really bad night's sleep or they're processing all of this information today as they listen and then they wake up tomorrow morning going, oh, I really didn't sleep well. How would you suggest I pick myself up after having a bad night's sleep? Of course, the most common thing is caffeine. And caffeine does help in reducing fatigue and sleepiness. However, it's very mixed in terms of what it actually does for our performance. So we don't feel so sleepy. It does seem to boost performance on tasks where sleepiness is otherwise a big factor. So passive learning. Um, so there it helps. But in almost any other task, it can actually disrupt or not do much good. And the danger in using caffeine is that it doesn't make us so sleepy. And it can still then interfere with our sleepiness in the evening. And it differs from person to person how long, you know, the caffeine is still in their system. But it can be very long. And for instance, for women on uh, contraceptives, the half time is double as long. Or if you have any liver problems, it'll be much longer. So it's different for everyone. We have different sensitivities. But I think in general, it's too prevalent for us to just look for caffeine to fix it because it disrupts our sleep even when we are not aware of it and then we're more sleepy the next day and more likely to need even more caffeine and the caffeine has less and less impact on performance as we use more of it so it's very easy to get into this negative spiral and of course it's not just coffee but it's also in coke in tea even in chocolate so i think that's really something to be aware of and then when we're tired, we are the worst at more creative tasks, more innovative tasks, novel tasks. So if you can postpone those to later and just do the stuff that you can almost, you know, do in your sleep, that's where <laughs> you're most likely to still shine in your entire day. And if there is other work that still needs to be done, See if you can outsource it or if you can get help from someone else to kind of have another set of eyes going over, I don't know, the document you wrote or put together because you're very likely to miss a lot of important details. And prioritize the recovery sleep because that's the only way to feel better again the next day and then maybe have another productive day. And in the moment, it can really help to exercise a bit, get your blood flow going. That can, of course, also help in reducing stress because you're more likely to feel stressed on a day that you're really tired. And getting bright light. So bright light can be this immediate kind of energy boost. Um, and if you have time for it, that's the sure way to then again boost your performance the rest of the day. Thank you for listening to this episode of Some Assembly Required. Dr. Els van der Helm is a sleep expert, ex-McKinsey consultant, entrepreneur and is really focused on improving the performance of organizations by improving the sleep of leaders and teams. She received her PhD from UC Berkeley and is adjunct professor at IE Business School in Madrid. 
Else extensively researched sleep during her master's in neurosciences, during which she studied the effect of sleep on memory, the Netherlands Institute for Neurosciences, and emotional processing at Harvard Medical School. As a Fulbright scholar, she studied the effects of sleep on the brain during her PhD in psychology from the University of California, Berkeley, resulting in peer-reviewed articles and has since gone on to link the importance of sleep to leadership skills, publishing the McKinsey Quarterly and Harvard Business Review. You can check out the description of this episode for details on how to reach else on socials and at the office. Tell her I say hi. Remember to subscribe to Some Assembly Required on your favorite podcast listening app because keeping it together isn't as easy as we think it should be. Original music by Josh Prinsloo. Production by me, Sean Lewitz. Thank you for listening to Some Assembly Required. <laughs>